0: Closing our series through the book of Philippians today. Uh, the series, What Lies Ahead? A series through Paul's letter to the Philippian church. And this is the last section of it. Uh, and this is where we end. <clears throat> so if you would uh, turn to Philippians chapter 4, we're going to read verse 14 all the way through. Philippians chapter 4. Verse 14 through 23. Paul just got done speaking to the Philippians about their generosity, trying to give him the things that he needed, and yet he prefaced that by saying, I'm not speaking this out of a sense of need. I'm speaking it more for your benefit. Now he's going to continue that thought in verse 14, and this is how he closes the whole book. Listen to this. Yet it was kind of you to share my trouble be with your spirit. This is God's word. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we ask now for the spirit of truth to lead us into truth. Away from the tendencies of our own flesh, the lies of the devil, and the schemes and fallenness of the world around us. We pray that we would truly be a church that is sanctified, set apart by your heart, for your will, not to be secluded from the rest of Santa Barbara, but to be immersed in it, as people who are transformed into the image of Christ. And may it truly be said of us, that we have spent time with the Lord. May people in this town know that you are real, not because we've argued very well or we've preached at them, but because they see in our inner and outer lives, in our relationships and the way that we treat them, the power of Jesus Christ, the risen one, raising us from the dead. We pray that as we close out this tremendous, wonderful, beautiful letter, your heart to the Philippians and for Santa Barbara and everyone in it would leave a lasting impression on us. In Jesus' name, amen. As I said uh, uh, earlier, Paul just spoke to the Philippians about contentment. The whole idea there was, whether you're rich or whether you're poor, there is a greater sense of freedom available to the Christian where you do not have to be... Uh, drugged down or affected in the deepest part of who you are by the externals around you, by your circumstances. Uh, You can receive blessings, but you could also be in a time of lack. You can have a lot of friends, but you can also be in isolation. While those things uh, may affect you emotionally, there is a, a type of joy rooted deep down inside that I want you to be able to tap into. And he, he goes on to speak about the secret of that. He says, the secret is you can do all things through Christ who is in you, strengthening you. And he refers to this as contentment. Contentment is true freedom. It is an element of true freedom where we are not, uh, our joy and our well-being is not contingent upon externals that we cannot control. And he says, I, I can be, Paul said this, I can be in seasons of lack, I can be in seasons of abundance. I can have a lot of stuff. I can have nothing. I could be successful. I could be a failure. And you know what? I'm okay. I'm prevented from melting down because of Christ in me. He's enough. And because I have enough in Christ, I can be content. And he speaks about this true freedom. He's going to continue that thought by showing us how contentment actually gives you the freedom, not just to be well, but to be generous. When you're not clinging to your own stuff, when you have the freedom, you have the freedom then to to give it away to people who are in need. He starts with an example of generosity. And he he started the letter speaking about the Philippians' generosity. He ends the letter speaking about the Philippians' generosity. And he says here in verse 14, follow uh, with me in your... Bibles or your devices in verse 14, he says, yet it was kind of you to share my trouble. To share my trouble. Another way of saying, just saying that is to, you fellowshipped with me in my trouble, in my lack, in my turmoil, in my imprisonment, in my need, you were sharing with me. I love how he says this. Uh, you understand what this is like if you've ever had an experience where somebody had your back in a tough situation. And it might have, you know, it certainly probably included some material support. Maybe they gave you uh, some food or some cash, or maybe your car broke down. They helped you out with that. Maybe you didn't have groceries. They bought you some. Maybe it wasn't material at all. Maybe it was just uh, social uh, and relational. Maybe you were lonely. Maybe your heart was broken. Maybe you were going through a really difficult time, and someone had some solidarity with you, and you you had that sense. You know that feeling that that person is with you suffering, and what's hurting you is hurting them. And So this is uh, not just material support. This isn't just a a, a Christian handout, but there's a sense of empathy and solidarity. This is what Paul is expressing to the Philippians. They're certainly supporting him materially. Uh, But there's also this sense in which they're sharing in his tough situation. He goes on to explain this a little bit more. He says in verse 16, they certainly uh, supported him with material means. It says that when he left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with, with him in giving and receiving except the Philippians only. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. Uh, Put this in a perspective you might understand. It would be like someone visiting Santa Barbara and saying to maybe a small group of you, like, hey, you know, a month later, like, hey, nobody in this town helped me, but you did. In fact, when I left Santa Barbara, by the time I got to Goleta, I already got the gift that you sent. Like, you were that eager to help me. You were that... uh, 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 Involved in my life that I, I couldn't even get away from you. For everybody else, it was kind of that uh, old adage, out of, uh, out of sight, out of mind. But with you guys, you remembered me, you were there for me, and you still are, and I'm getting not only material support from you, but also spiritual and emotional support. And then he describes it in this way in verse 15, I love this. He says, you entered into partnership with me that in your giving and receiving with me, in your solidarity and your empathy, you're actually entering into partnership with me. This, is, this word comes from uh, the Greek word koinonia, which you might have seen or heard of. There's a campground named uh, koinonia. There's coffee mugs with koinonia on it. We, there's T-shirts. It's a word that we commonly associate with community because that's what it means. It's translated here as partnership. But this is, this is Paul saying, you entered into a biblical, rich idea of community with me. That's interesting to me. Because here he's describing more than what we often get in Santa Barbara, which is networking and connection. What he's describing here is empathy, solidarity, support, and not just a one-way street, right? Community, the deep kind, at least what we see in the New Testament, doesn't just revolve around one person getting their needs met, which is perhaps how it sometimes forms, and that's a valid thing. We've all got needs, we all, especially social needs, and we want to be connected to people who we feel and know love us and care for us. But it's a two-way street. There's also a mutual caring and sharing. So it's not just a community in which I enter into to get my needs met, It's a community in which I enter into that I might get my needs met so that I might meet the needs of other people in that community as well. There's a mutual care and sharing and we see this all over the New Testament. Uh, This pops up a couple times where we see this happening in Acts chapter two, verse 45. It says, and they were, the, the believers there were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need, uh, and so here's an example where everybody in the body of Christ is cared for. Uh, later on in Acts chapter four, verse thirty-four through thirty-five, it says there was not a needy person among them. Would you love to say that about about our community? There was not a needy person among them. For as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet and it was distributed to each as any had need. This is the early church. I don't want to idolize the early church like they were perfect. They certainly had their problems, which is why Galatians and Corinthians uh, and all sorts of books were were written. Uh, They had the same problems we have today, but we see examples very close to the time of Jesus and uh, the manifestation of, of the Spirit on Pentecost, what a community, an element of community that is, is very alluring, where nobody has any needs because everyone is mutually caring and sharing for each other. Now, this isn't, uh, I don't want you to confuse this with a modern economic ideology. This isn't capitalism. It's not socialism. I'm not speaking to the worth or the, uh, uh, or the detriment of either of those things. I'm just saying those things weren't around in the first century. This is not those things. This is not looking to the invisible hand of the marketplace, and it's not looking to the government to distribute uh, those things. This was written before that, and the power here is the Spirit of God working itself in the hearts of men and women who have been transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. Not speaking again to the worth or the uh, uh, detriment of either of those ways of viewing economics, just saying this is different, this is supernatural. Um, To give you an idea of the effect this type of community had and what this might look like in Santa Barbara if this were to take place. Uh, I just want to bring, you a, bring up a quote from a letter written uh, in the, I think it was the fourth century. Uh, this is by a guy, named, a guy by the name of Julian the Apostate. He was an emperor after Constantine. They call him the Apostate because after Constantine brought Christianity into the Roman Empire, Julian came in and wanted to eradicate Christianity. So he was not sympathetic to Christians or the Christian causes. He's trying to get rid of it. And he's writing a letter in a, the year 362 AD to a friend uh, complaining about the situation they're in and complaining about Christians. Listen to what he's saying. I'm gonna read the whole quote. He's saying, I have given directions that 30,000 modai I love that, whatever that is, of corn shall be assigned every year for the whole of Galatia and 60,000 pints of wine. I order that one-fifth of this be used for the poor who serve the priests and the remainder be distributed by us to strangers and beggars. For it is disgraceful that when no Jew ever has to beg and those impious Galileans, his word for Christians, Support not only their own poor, but ours as well. All men see that our people lack aid from us. See what's happening? Julian is complaining, the eradicator of Christianity in Rome at that time, that his agenda to discredit the Christian faith is not going so well. Because everyone in the Roman Empire is seeing how he and his, his, his empire and his government are not caring for the poor. Rather, it's those Christians that he hates, that are not only caring for their own poor, but they're also caring for those that aren't theirs. They're caring for the Hellenists and the Romans and the uh, Gentiles, people who aren't Christians, the least of these. And he's disgusted. And he's saying, we need to ramp this up because I'm trying to to discredit Christianity, but gosh, I'm having a really hard time because these Galileans, these Christians, just love all the poor. This is the effect of generosity, of Christian generosity, a generosity that has been let loose by the gospel of Jesus Christ. And Paul goes on to Unleash more of the effects of generosity, not just an example, and what this looked like in the early church, and what this could like look like in Santa Barbara if it were to take root in our own hearts. But he goes on to explain the effects of generosity in our own lives, not just in the city around us. He tells us that this is uh, how we experience God through we experience God through generosity. This is a part of our interaction. Uh, interaction with a personal God. And he says this in verse 17. He says, not that I seek the gift, when the Philippians are taking care of his needs, he's saying, not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. Now, there's a sense here in which he's, he's speaking about fruit as the result, maybe, of fruitful mission. He you, you might be thinking, you know, you're contributing to what's going on in the kingdom And that's, you're participating in the big picture, and so that's a credit to your account. But there's also maybe the sense in which they're also getting an experience of the blessing. The giver themselves is experiencing a divine blessing by tapping into gospel generosity. I love how the message translation translates verse 17. It says, not that I'm looking for handouts, but I do want you to experience the blessing that issues from generosity. What blessing is that? I want to suggest that perhaps there is a spiritual connection between us and God that we experience in a unique way when we selflessly give to other people, that we experience in no other way. Listen to this quote by Jesus himself in Matthew 25, verse 35. He says, for I was hungry and you gave me food. I was thirsty and you gave me drink. I was a stranger and you welcomed me. Now, the disciples would later ask him, when did we ever do that, Jesus? And he said, whenever you gave one of these things to the least of these, you were doing it to me. That is incredible. Jesus, in this passage, is so closely identifying with the poor and the needy that he's saying when you give a glass of water, when you house, when you... Clothe, when you care for, when you love people who are in need, it's I'm receiving it. I am receiving those things. No wonder Paul would later say in Acts 20, verse 35, who, uh, receiving from Jesus, he says, in, uh, in everything I did, I showed you that by this kind of hard work, we must help the weak. Remembering the words the Lord Jesus himself said, It is more blessed to give than to receive. It, was al- it almost seems like Jesus is saying that when we give to the poor, when we give to people who are needy, wherever they might be, the least of these, those who are weak and powerless, we are experiencing an element of Jesus' person in a unique way. We're experiencing his presence and his person. Our world around us teaches that to watch out for yourself, to, uh, to To personally thrive, you need to keep your stuff and stay put. And in the kingdom, we see a completely different picture. Jesus says that when you care for the needs of others in the spirit of Christ, you're actually, in a strange way, caring for yourself in the best way possible. We are people who lose our lives in order to gain them. And by giving, you are in a very special way in a mysterious way opening up yourself to the life of God but we don't just give to get from God although that's certainly valid we see it right here I think we also give because we worship God through generosity we experience God through generosity but we also just worship him through generosity Paul says in verse 18, I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts that you sent. And then he calls that gift a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. He's saying your giving to people in need, specifically me and others, is an act of worship to God. So this isn't just for our own self-preservation. This isn't just merely because we desire blessing from God I'm going to give to others so that God blesses me although that's entirely valid and true it's also simply just a right response from us to God it's worship it's a right relationship of a creature to a creator you have given me these all of this stuff so I, my relationship to you is one of gratitude I bless you by giving back now, why is generosity, as Paul says, acceptable and pleasing to God? Because generosity befits generosity. And the testimony of Scripture is that God gives more than anybody, and he has lavished us with his own generosity, specifically the generosity of his grace. I love that passage uh, in Luke chapter 7, verse 47, when Simon the Pharisee has Jesus over to his home and uh, during that meal, uh, a woman of questionable repute uh, comes into that, that living room and starts pouring out uh, an expensive sacrifice. I believe it was perfume uh, to the chagrin of the Pharisee and his buddies at the time. And in his mind, he was just criticizing Jesus, saying, yeah, if you knew who this was who was touching you, you know, you'd be repulsed if you were a real rabbi. And Jesus, being a rabbi and God, hears his thoughts and responds to his thoughts and, and basically says, you know, the reason this is awesome is because this woman has been forgiven of much. She's been given much by God and therefore she gives back much. His words specifically were, uh, she was forgiven much, so she loves much. You, however, and he goes on to say, don't even know what you've been forgiven of, and so you're very stingy. You didn't greet me at the door. You didn't watch my feet. You certainly didn't put perfume on my hair, customary greeting uh, in that day. And he compares it, saying, the person who has experienced generosity naturally outflows with generosity. Why do we worship God by giving to other people? It's because we, in a sense, have, uh, have been given much by God, and we know it. God has been so generous to the believer. The origins of generosity is in how much God has given to you and to me by his grace. Listen, uh, if you have your Bibles open, I hope you do, turn back to chapter 1 where Paul opens by speaking about the uh, Philippians and look at verse 7. And he's again at the very beginning just so thrilled that they're partnering with him in his hardship and for the uh, extension of the gospel. And he says in verse seven, I want you to see if you uh, see this phrase in verse seven. He says, it is right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart. Why? For you are all partakers with me of grace. Why are we generous? Because we have received of the generosity of God. What has God given to us? Grace. We are all partakers of grace. I love how Dallas Willard defines grace. He puts it this way. He says, God, grace is God acting in our life to bring about and enable us to do what we cannot do on our own. This can, this can mean anything, even as big as your salvation, your conversion, God acting in your life to bring about and enable you to do what you cannot do on your own. By grace, you have been saved. To uh, as small and as trifling as getting out of bed in the morning uh, and facing the discouragement of your Monday, God acting in your life to bring about and enable you to do what you cannot do on your own. It's what allows us to be parents when we feel weak. It's it's what allows us to go to work on Mondays when we feel no sense of purpose. It's what allows us to walk the Christian walk when we feel like failures. It's what allows us to go back to God in repentance after sin instead of, instead of running away from him in shame uh, because God is acting in our life constantly to bring about and enable us to do what we cannot do on our own. This is the grace of God. Paul said to his protege Timothy in 2 Timothy 1, God is the one who saved us and called us by a holy calling not because of our works, but because of his own purpose and grace, him acting in our life to bring about and enable us to do what we cannot do on our own, which he gave us in Christ Jesus before the ages began. So where does generosity come from in the life of the Christian? We should be able to say, well, we can give because God has so richly given to us in Jesus. Paul would later speak to one of those churches that he was telling the Philippians about in one of his passive-aggressive remarks. One of those churches that, you know, never, you know, or I think it might be one of those. They didn't support me when I went out. And he's now encouraging them in this letter in Second Corinthians chapter 8 to contribute to a fund of poor believers in Jerusalem. He's wanting them to all pitch in and to contribute financially so that the poor in this other city will have some food to eat. And listen to what he says. Listen to where he he finds the motivation. Um, This is on the screen. This is from the NLT. He says, I am not commanding you to do this. But I am testing how genuine your love is by comparing it with the eagerness of the other churches. I just want to stop there. That is the funniest thing I've ever read. (laughs) I'm not telling you to do it. Just want to see if you have real love, you know, and I'm comparing you to the other churches who are doing it. Strange, but whatever. Word of God, inerrant in all of its ways, but awesome. But listen to this next line. This gets me right here. He says, you know the generous grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. You know the generous grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Though he was rich, yet for your sakes he became poor, so that by his poverty he could make you rich. Here's my advice. It would be good for you to finish what you started a year ago, uh, a Jerusalem fund, right? Last year you were first, the first who wanted to give and you were the first to begin doing it. Now you should finish what you started. Let the eagerness you showed in the beginning be matched now by your giving. Give in proportion to what you have. Whatever you give is acceptable if you give it eagerly, and give according to what you have, not what you don't have. Of course, I don't mean your giving should make life easy for others and hard for yourself. I only mean that there should be some equality. Listen to this line. Right now, you have plenty and can help those who are in need. Later, they will have plenty and can share with you when you need it. In this way, things will be equal. As the scriptures say, those who gathered a lot had nothing left over, and those who gathered only a little had enough. Not only does God give lavishly to us, and the idea here is that we've been given so much that we pour out in generosity to others, but the truth of the matter is we can't outgive God either. He says, and I want to end with this last line, kind of, uh, in verse 19. My God will supply every need of yours according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. I want you to give out of the generosity that you have tasted from, from God. By the way, my God will supply all your needs according to his unlimited resources in heaven. In other words, we're not just, when we're speaking about receiving from God so much, we're not just talking about salvation, although certainly that would be included. But he is constantly, richly providing for us as the days go by. Now, I know what some of you are thinking. You're probably pulling to mind a televangelist in a three-piece suit on TV Holding up a bottle of water. (laughs) If you contribute a seed gift, $500 in three installments, God will richly reward you. That's not what Paul is saying. This isn't like a get rich scheme. This isn't a recipe for exotic cars. If I give away my 1989 Ford Taurus, God will give me a Bugatti Veyron or whatever. (laughs) This isn't that but it is God caring for you and your needs and the things that you're going through. He's not a deistic God that's far removed from the experience of your life. He cares about you, food on the table, shelter, friendships, love. Now, we know generally, this is generally speaking, we've Probably all encountered believers who loved God and were faithful that did not have food. That happens all over the world. We are truly rich and privileged where we live. All around the world, people are starving and they love Jesus. And yet, Paul was too. He said, I have nothing. My dreams are crushed. I never made it to Spain. I made it to Rome like I wanted, but in a prison, not in an amphitheater. Everybody's left me. I barely have the clothes or stuff. And the churches that I worked my rear end for all deserted me except for you. Praise God. And yet he also had this sense and posture, God is meeting my needs. I am content. God knows exactly what I need in this moment, and he's giving me a lot of it. God takes care of our needs and he continues to give us what we need in the moment, our daily bread for that day. And we should also throw in there, he doesn't just give us the things that we need, but also immaterial things. What are some of the things that Paul had that made him content in Philippians chapter four? Joy, verse four. Peace, verse seven. The comforting presence of God in Trial, verse 9. Contentment, verse 11 through 13. The wealth and the resources of heaven available to Paul and available to you, whatever you're going through and whatever you're dealing with, God has not left you to yourself. He is with you, even when it looks bleak, even when you want to give up, even though you're going through whatever it is you're going through that I have no idea... God is intimately acquainted with your ways. Psalm 139 says he knows you so well he's got your hairs on your head numbered and he knows the rhythms and the movements of your own heart and thought life. He certainly knows what you're struggling with now and he has not left you alone. And he will give you everything that you need to get through it. God being the greatest giver of all lavishes us with love and grace Yes, because he loves us. And also that we might show others that they are loved as well. That when other people are in need, they'll find that manifestation and expression in physical little Jesuses like you and me. Just look at the flow of Paul's thought. He speaks about the fragrant offering of the Philippians that is an act of worship to God first and foremost but how it's also affecting him and it's sharing in his troubles that he's going with and he's experiencing deep fellowship and how God will continue to supply their needs and ours in order to be able to live that way. I think the point of this passage is that we are blessed to be a blessing. God blesses us because he loves us. He also blesses us to be a blessing to others. A blessing, if we were to recap all of Philippians and pull out some points here and there, blessing for us means that we've been given something greater to live our life for. We've been brought into a giant gospel story. Blessing means Christ's love in us, on us, and towards us, even though we don't deserve it. Blessing is the ability to be changed from the inside out, spiritual formation both individually but also as a community. Blessing is the knowledge of God in Christ, meaning we can now experience real joy and real peace and real presence of God and real contentment. It's also, uh, blessing is also the reason to press on, even though things might not be going our way, and the list is endless. Paul is saying these are all for your benefit because your God loves you, pardon the cliche, but he has a plan for your life. But it doesn't stop there. It's not merely for us, it's for each other. And for those outside of the fold that don't know God, we were blessed to be a blessing. I find it very humorous that the way Paul ends um, this letter is by a series of greetings and he says, you know, greet every saint. Greet the brothers who are with you and that greet you. All the saints greet you. Verse 22, especially those of Caesar's household. Um, if you remember, as we've gone through this book, Paul really desired to get to Rome because he wanted to preach the gospel. He got to Rome, but not in the way that he envisioned. God had different plans. You ever experienced that? You had like a five-year plan for your life and God does something entirely different? And it's not like it's not the way he wanted it to go. He ended up in Rome, but he ended up in Rome in a dungeon. And I find it so fascinating that at the end of this letter, he throws out what seems to be uh, a little bit of irony and a little bit of rejoicing. Say hello to all of my brothers in the household of Caesar. That is the one place in all of Rome that no preacher could ever get into. Those who are allegiant to Caesar more than anybody else. Somehow, the gospel infiltrated his entire neighborhood. The praetorian guard, the slaves, the servants, the butlers, the caregivers, the soldiers, somehow they saw in Paul suffering in prison the life of Jesus and little by little people started to get changed. I almost imagine as Paul is penning this, I don't know what he looked like, but I almost envision him penning this last line, all the saints greet you, especially those of Caesar's household, with a little grin on his face and a twinkle in his eye. Saying God, God is so good. God is wise and kind, and better. And he's got a better plan than I do, and I'm so glad that I trusted him. We were blessed to be a blessing. Paul would later tell the Corinthians, you will be enriched in every way so that you can always be generous. But I think uh, the one objection that's probably common to most of us, if we were to hear that line, maybe you're saying it to yourself. Maybe you intellectually agree with the line, we are blessed to be a blessing, but you're also following that up with saying, but I'm not blessed. Those who are blessed can be a blessing, but I'm in a time of hardship, I'm going through a lot of stuff, so when I have more to give, I'll give it. The objection here is I am not blessed, therefore I cannot experience this life and I'm just gonna watch out for myself. Later when I get my, my stuff together, I'll be more generous. Later when this happens in my life, I'll be more generous. And there is in that a lack of gratitude because we don't actually need a whole lot. Now that's not to take away from our sufferings, our trials, the things that we're going through. Maybe you're legitimately uh, in, in a legitimate spot where you're like, I have no material means to share with other people. I'm just trying to, I'm paycheck to paycheck, man, I can't. By the time I pay for like my bills, I have no cents. But you don't have to give cash. You can invite somebody to your house. You can give hospitality. You may say, yeah, but have you seen where I live? I live in a studio. And there's only room for one person. Well, you can meet outside. Say, well, I don't have a front yard. Can you smile at somebody? There's so many things that spirit-filled, joyful Christians have to offer to a world that is hurting and needy. If it's, if it's food on, the, on a plate, so be it. But it doesn't have to be. It could be your hospitality. It could be a kind word. It could be you going out of your way to serve somebody. So many ways that we can give. I don't think the issue here is that we don't have anything to give. I think it's that we don't see what we have and we lack gratitude. One of my favorite passages about this is when Jesus uh, is facing a crowd of hungry people, I think about, I don't know, two or three or 5,000 people, and the disciples come up to him with food and they come up with basically a few plates of bread and fish. And what do the disciples do? They do what I would have done in that moment. And what I do every day, it seems like. Complain about what I don't have. And they actually say, send these people somewhere else. Send them to the, you know, Chipotle or whatever. To get their own food. This is all we have. This is for us. Now, what's Jesus do? He multiplies it. But what's he do before he multipl- multiplies it? He gives thanks Jesus gives thanks in the lack. And in his thanksgiving, the Father multiplies the resources and everybody is fed. Grace in this passage is the fuel for generosity. But I think we should go a step farther and say that gratitude is the ignition that provides the spark. Grace is not your concern. That's not something you turn on. That is from God to you. What often keeps us from tasting of God's grace is our lack of gratitude. Our entitlement, our complaining, our stinginess, a lack of gratitude will leave you stingy even if you are the wealthiest person in Santa Barbara. Consequently, a wealth of gratitude will leave you wondering why you have so much and who you can bless even when you are homeless. I want to end with a spiritual practice this morning before we sing together. Because God, in this passage, has done everything that is needed for us to be a blessing, but where we often turn off the faucet is in our lack of gratitude. I want us to practice gratitude. This might be hard, but it can be practiced, and by the power of the Spirit, it can be learned and it can be done but it revolves and starts around what we've been talking about for weeks, your thinking, your patterns of thinking. I want you to just try this out for a second. I'm going to uh, give you some moments of silence to think through some of these things, but uh, I'm going to ask you two questions. First, I want you for a moment to think of some event or situation. It could be recent, could be distant, but some event or situation that would ordinarily cause you to complain or to compare once you think about it. Just think about that for a moment. An event, a situation, or a relationship that would ordinarily cause you to complain or compare. Got it? Okay, now share it with everyone. No, just kidding. (laughs) What were the feelings that came up when you thought about it? Don't share this, just to yourself. I know for me, I get that tense feeling in my chest. Anxiety, when I think of situations that are unfair or out of my control, difficult situations, I get a tightness in my chest, I start to breathe short, I I get shortness of breath, but then very quickly after that, I begin to replay scenes in my mind. I need that, or I deserve that. Why did they get it? What is it for you? Where does your mind go? See how powerful the mind is? God is unleashing the resources of heaven by his grace upon your lap, but we shut it off, and it starts in our mind by a lack of gratitude. So I want you to switch that around and give you another moment to do this. But I want you to, again, think of that event or situation or relationship that is difficult, that would ordinarily cause you to complain or compare, and I want you to reframe the questions that you're asking. I want you to ask yourself, where is God in this situation? Or if that doesn't work, uh, you could ask a different type uh, of the same question, how is he present in this circumstance or situation? Or what was God doing in me? Ask that question prayerfully. I'll give you a a few seconds to do that. that change anything for you? Sometimes we have to change the questions we ask ourselves. A question like this keeps me from going where my mind wants to go. It forces me to look for the work and presence of God in my life. And we as believers believe that he's always present and always active. I'm just forcing myself to look for it. Now doing this once on a Sunday isn't going to change you if you're a chronic complainer. but if you do this regularly, it will. If you were to do this at the end of every day, while drinking deeply of Christ's generosity towards you, renewing your mind, if you were to couple that with this practice or things like this, looking through your day at the faithfulness and, or activity of God instead of the lack, you will change your patterns of thought you will grow in gratitude and you will be able to taste and see the power of generosity not only in your life but in those around you. I'm going to ask the worship team to come out. You can continue to do this if you want. When we sing, it's a unique way of doing the same thing. Instead of dwelling on our own thoughts, we're taking other thoughts. Usually thoughts that are put to music, and that are specifically geared toward getting our minds on the person and activity and work and faithfulness of Jesus. And we sing them together. That's another way of changing the way that you think. As we do it, we can just prepare our hearts for this, this time together by asking the Lord, God, I might not be as grateful as I would like to be. But I know in my mind that you are a good God and that you give a lot. Can you please take what I know intellectually and drive it into my heart? I want to know you more. If your life is largely one that is based on your lack and on anxiety and on despair... Paul is waving in your face, in all of chapter 4, a better way of life. But this doesn't come by pulling yourself up by the bootstraps or by strengthening your willpower or by reading self-help books or by anything that you can do. It comes from a God who is acting in your life to bring about and enable you to do what you cannot do on your own. What we do in the second set of worship and hopefully throughout the week is to simply posture ourselves to receive that grace. Let's do that together this morning. Heavenly Father, have your way. In Jesus' name, amen.